Hi, my name is Ed Kozell, and welcome to Conversations with Calistoga, a periodic set of podcasts covering events, topics, and people relevant to our community. Topography, geography, and economics leave our town a bit isolated, so hopefully this series will add some color to our landscape and substance to some of our discussions. The hope is that this series takes form and critical mass over the next months and weaves itself into the fabric of our extended community. I'd love to hear your feedback, suggestions, and comments. Send them to Calistoga Conversations, one word, at gmail.com. Again, that's Calistoga Conversations at gmail.com. Hello, this is Ed Kozell, and today I'm speaking with Thomas Brown, recently recognized by the Wine Spectator as one of, if not the most, accomplished winemaker in the Napa Valley. Quiet by nature and determinedly busy, the path he cuts through the wine industry grows continually wider. Thomas and his family live in Calistoga, attend local schools, participate widely in the community. Thomas, welcome for your time. Thank you. Excited to be here. You chose to live in Calistoga, and the Wine Spectator says you find similarities between here and your home in South Carolina. If true, what are those? Um, I'll start with a small example. Um, growing up in a really tiny town in, in South Carolina, um, everyone sort of knew each other. Um, it was a multi-generational town. I think a, a lot of times the reason for that there was people started having kids when they were 19. So when I was born, my mom was 19, my grandmother was 39, my great-grandmother was 59. So all those generations, all those people were the oldest in their generation. And all those sort of family members had each other's backs. They showed up to sporting events and school functions and all this other kind of stuff. And then I jumped in with another prominent Calistogan, a guy named Donnie Taylor, on the Donnie's softball team. And we're all grown adults acting like kids on a softball field, but like... Jason Tamani's grandparents come to every game, another prominent Napa Valley name, Calistoga name. So you see uh, Donnie's mom, uh, Donnie's dad before he passed, Jason's grandparents, Keegan Barrett's dad and mom. I mean, it's just an amazing thing. You would think we were back playing Little League. And so I'm sitting there in the softball field in this beautiful sort of summer evening having sort of flashbacks to what it was like growing up in Sumter, South Carolina, seeing extended mm-hmm. families picnicking on the sidelines, cheering each other on. Yeah. We play this other ki- uh, team, this group of young kids. They're all St. Linians. Their grandparents are there. Their sisters are there. Brothers are there. Parents are there. Kids are there. It's just this great small-town family feel where everyone knows each other. Everyone supports each other. And uh, you just feel like the support network extends beyond your immediate family. It's like everybody's pulling for you, and there's just something great about that. Oh, that's excellent. That's a really good story. What What are some of the differences between Calistoga and South Carolina? Um, a little more progressive in terms of politics here. <laughs> um, there's most of the folks back in my hometown I wouldn't necessarily engage with in political talk. Um, I just think it's probably a slightly healthier lifestyle. I think people are a little more focused on health and, you know, their dietary choices and exercise choices. And, you know, I, I, I just think uh, there's more affluence here, of course, too. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, kind of the, the bottom to the top, there's everyone's just doing a little better for themselves, too, or certainly has the means as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's an openness. There's a lack of judgment. The racial division is probably still here, 
but it's not quite as pronounced as it is there. I mean, there it's black and white. Here it's white and Hispanic. Mm-hmm. But I, and, and it does exist here. But I do think it's not just a surface thing. I do think people are a little more open and accepting here, which has made me f- always feel much more comfortable. This is a, with the, these things that happen to you as a kid or young adult that you can't put your finger on until you come to that next place and experience those things and are like, okay, I had a, a weird feeling the whole time I was in place A. Mm-hmm. Now I'm in place B, and I've figured out exactly why that was. Do you think we listen any better or any differently than, than people in the rest of the country? Or do we just think we're in a better place? I think we think we're in a better place. I think everyone, I mean, all places in general, when you boil them down, are kind of the same. I mean, everyone sort of has their own agenda. Everyone thinks that they know better than the next person, and everyone's always kind of right. I think tolerance, though, and maybe that is a form of what you were asking about, there is a, a greater tolerance here. Like, um, not just racially motivated things, but sexual orientation or, or things like that. It's just more open here. It, and it's not a surface thing. Like, sometimes you're like, oh, yeah, you just pretend to feel that way. And you go home and, you know, d- don't feel that way behind closed doors. Here, I just don't think that that is the case. And I think there's a lot of people who found this town, Calistoga specifically, who've migrated here because of that sort of openness and tolerance and accepting. And there is a real sense of community here that's not just something happens on the street. Mm-hmm. It actually happens behind closed doors, too. How did you come to Calistoga? I mean, it might have been Napa, it might have been St. Helena, Yountville. Um, it was St. Helena first. So I moved here in January of 96. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to the University of Virginia, graduated in May of 94, and spent a little time in Richmond, Virginia, bouncing around restaurants because I developed an interest in wine. So I was waiting tables, buying wine for restaurants, and decided to pursue Napa. Through a series of happenstance, ended up renting a room in St. Helena. It was a great little house behind the Safeway, um, $375 a month um, to share half of a house in St. Helena. Um, sound makes me sound really old, talking about the good old days. But as I, as I sort of advanced in my career and started to save some money, the idea of buying a house started to occur to me, of course. And everyone that I was meeting at the time that I really loved or really resonated with lived in Calistoga. Mm-hmm. And so there was just something about the draw. Mm-hmm. And one of them, I'm name checking every prominent Calistogan, was Vince Toffinelli, for instance. Mm-hmm. I was working at Turley Wine Cellars. One of our biggest growers at the time was Vince mm-hmm. and his family's piece on the corner of uh, Donna Wheel and Silverado Trail. I just loved uh, Vince. I met uh, a guy named Jeff Davies, who now works for me at Ravana. He's the in-house winemaker. And his wife, Rachel, is my wife's best friend since they were five years old and met in Calistoga, uh, Genevieve Welsh. Mm-hmm. And so there was this sort of circle of people, as I was meeting a ton of people, the circle that I really loved all lived in Calistoga. So when I decided I'm going to set roots down, it just made sense to start looking up here and then bought the house at 1418 Cedar in 2001 and never looked back. It's a beautiful house. I've seen it. Um, It's clear that you've made a point to keep your roots in the town. Your children attend the local schools. Um, uh, You chose to to live here, not in St. Helena. Um, uh, This is something you and Genevieve feel strongly about. Yeah, I mean, I I think Genevieve, as a, a matter of statement, probably feels stronger than I do about this. To me... We live 100 yards from the elementary school. 
and we, you and I probably could talk about this for quite some time. Kids, when they're you're that age, you need a ton of sleep. You need to rest. You're growing. Everything's happening. The kids can get up at 7.30. They make school by 8.30. That's one huge advantage. If you showed me another school that was world's better for the kids, not for the parents, but for the kids, that was local, I would certainly consider that. But I just haven't seen that school. Sure, there's other schools where the parents might be of a similar demographic to Genevieve and I, and maybe there's a social circle there that's a big you know, consideration. But I have a really as big a social circle as I want, which is 10 times bigger than I want it to be right now anyway. So it's not about me and standing in line to pick up the kids and making sure that everyone I'm standing next to is of a similar demographic or skin mm-hmm. color or whatever socioeconomic class. I just want the kids to have the best possible experience. I want them to see what kind of the real world is like, but I would never deny them the best education. So again, to reiterate, if I thought there was a much better option out there locally, I for sure would send them there, but I just haven't seen it. And this is a form of sort of supporting the community. I mean, imagine people have to do whatever they think is right for their kids, but imagine if everyone in every one of these little towns just sent their kid to the local public schools, how great every one of those public schools would be. I'm a public school kid um, from Sumter, South Carolina. I'm not sure I ever had the choice, to be honest with you. There were public schools in that area, but they mostly revolved around segregation, even in the 80s and 90s. There's some friends of mine who might disagree with that, but if I showed you the yearbooks, it would become very clear as to why people were doing that. Here, I just don't see that as an issue, and I don't see, again, a much better option. So I don't see any reason not to send them there. Mm-hmm. If I thought they had become disadvantaged, we would definitely look to a different school. Mm-hmm. Our kids are fourth and sixth grade. When it comes to high school, if we think there's a lack of opportunity at the local high school, meaning Cal Sagai, we would consider sending them somewhere else. Because also I think that's when things start to really ratchet up in terms of college prep and exposure to the type of pre-experiences that lead you into a better college career, if that's even their thing, which we still don't know. I love my kids. I think they're very bright. Neither of them, I can so far, seem to be geniuses. So, I mean, I think they're going to be okay. But it is a year-by-year evaluation, and um, I'm super excited with where they are. Administration, teachers, fellow parents, community support of the school. It's a really amazing experience. How How are you professionally and how are you, the family, handling this coronavirus lockdown? Professionally, um, for me, I hate to say that we're unaffected because it makes us sound tone deaf, but wine production is definitely labeled an essential business. So we have kind of business as usual at the wineries, even though we are doing smaller crews, split crews, uh, some weekend work if we need to keep people isolated, things like that. And um, if there's an upside, it's made us refocus on what is truly essential to running the best possible wine winery wine business etc i think if anything that comes out of this and a positive will be that people started to realize that there was so much bs involved with all types of business like unnecessary meetings and unnecessary Mm -hmm. trips to the office when people could easily work from home Mm -hmm. and i'm not sure what where that's coming from but if anything this should lead to a greater efficiency and we'll definitely look to implement that in the wineries as well i mean we we were looking to hire some additional seller people at a couple of wineries, and now we're running on half a crew and getting the same amount of work done. 
probably not going to hire those additional people, unfortunately, for in terms of job creation. Mm-hmm. But I think we're seeing things run better, more efficient, smarter, you know, more thought put into every single process than we'd ever ever done before. If anything, it shows that maybe we're a bit complacent. And uh, now I think we're, we're thinking about maximum efficiency, safety, um, and what's truly necessary, which is a nice change. You've had a hand in designing several wineries, and I think you're partnered in some of them. Mendingwall, for example. Yes. Um, yep. but, but now you're building your own winery here in Calistoga. Uh, tell us about it. Um, and, uh, so an odd time to build in terms of the history of California and uh, construction. Um, everything is sort of a moving target. Um, I, I don't know what what the proper analogy is, but the, the pain that we're suffering now with the moving target of completion date and budget, I think will be replaced by the satisfaction of, of getting it done somewhere soon. Um, you guys are have already won the right for the first tour of the winery. Um, so you'll know before anyone else when we actually think that the thing is done. Um, I think for me, who's always trying to push quality in wine, the more control you have over the process from grape growing all the way to bottling, uh, the better the wines are going to be. So even though we've had control over winemaking because we are working in facilities that I have control over, we don't have ownership of those wineries. So I think this is another move for us to push quality and then on top of that, the, some added benefits of legacy, um, asset appreciation, gravity of, of inviting guests to our winery and saying, this is ours. We're not just a custom crush client. I think there's a huge value add just across the board on owning your own facility. Is there a, a, a vision for the, I don't know, the customer experience at, at that winery? You know, what, what, what will you, how will it be? different you've talked about quality but how how else will it be different from some of the other because you where you hang out where you spend your time today they're nice places yeah they're they're definitely nice places we want to we've never been able to so rivers marie started in 02 so we've been in business almost 20 years and we've never had a hospitality component so this feels long overdue so we're not out there to reinvent the wheel because i don't know that that's out there to be had Mm -hmm. but what we want to do is welcome people in have them feel relaxed, have them feel like they're not being rushed, um, have the garden off the back of the winery to be able to do walking tours if people want to stretch their legs or see something else that's agricultural. Um, we'll probably do blended tastings in the sense we're, we're trying to work this out, but if let's say the 10 a.m. slot has eight seats and you guys book two, you might be joined by two other people. And it might go awfully, and we hope not. But you also might make new friends out of it, and we might make new friends out of it. Mm-hmm. So we want to have a kind of a communal aspect. We'll definitely put a lot of thought towards the overall presentation of the wines, the glassware, the table, all this other stuff. But the tasting room itself, which you all will see, is one small room with one table and one person who works there, and that's it. So it'll be a very personal experience. It'll be tailored to people who want to come in and experience our wines, of course, but also whatever wines out of our lineup they want to experience. Mm-hmm. And we want it to be not pretentious, come in, have some fun, crack some jokes, walk around. If you want to see the tanks or the barrels, walk around, see the barrels, and just enjoy the overall experience. And and we want it to seem high class, but we also, also want it to feel like it's Calistoga. So there should be a casual element as well. Now, Rivers Marie makes a knockout Pinot. 
um, and and other wines, but you're really known for your cab. Uh, what what will be the what will the lineup look like at at Rivers Marie? I think we'll let the guests dictate that a bit because we just did a um, I did sort of a it wasn't even a virtual it wasn't even a tasting it was like a webinar mm-hmm. for a site called WineBerserkers.com it's a kind of a wine appreciation site mm-hmm. and a bunch of people logged in and one of the last comments I saw right before it ended was this guy is like look this is the amount of time spent. Um, on Thomas's three varietals, Pinot, Chard, Cab. To me, this is the order of the quality of the wines they make. Cab, Pinot, Chard, which surprised me. So I would always think we would lead with Pinot, but if someone rolled in and were like, Pinots are fine, but you're known for Cab, and we think your Rosemary Cabs are just as good as anything else you make, we certainly would focus the tasting around that. So we want to make it flexible. So I think maybe one of the prerequisites when someone wants to book is we might ask them, you know, mm-hmm. or, or look at their purchase record. What do you like of ours? And please let us know because we love to tailor the wine experience to, to your liking. Is the wine industry changing? Uh, well, it's always changing, but you know, how is it changing now that that's notable and, and there's something a, that you think about? There's a lot more competition for, for body count at wineries to come visit. And with what's going on right now, that's going to change even more dramatically. There was a recession brewing, I think, that was going to impact great prices, maybe bottle prices, even though people seem really reluctant to ever lower their prices. So I think it's going to shake a lot of people out. So I think we're about to see a huge contraction where you see a lot of small brands fold, and you might see even more consolidation across corporate clients buying smaller labels. Um, We've always been about the long play. So for us, it's always to underprice and sort of over-deliver. Um, so we, we hope that puts us in a good position to take advantage of some of this. We don't want to, you know, take advantage of anyone's hardships, but I think there's a lot of people who, who've been ill positioned for a while and the boom was sort of propping them up. But what's about to happen is you're going to see a shakeout of a lot of those folks. Um, which again, if you're in a good position, there'll be a lot of things to, a lot of opportunity to take advantage of in the near term. Your children are very young, um, so it's impossible to say now, but wine is is one of the few businesses where multi generational actually works. Do you, do you see them being in that business someday? We we I've recently been talking about this a lot. Um, again, no judgment on anyone who decides that selling is the right thing for them or anything else. But I feel like, especially even with Oscar and Hazel being twelve and um, as of two days ago ten. Um, even if you, they don't have any interest in it, keep the asset. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll position the project to be part of the family legacy. Mm-hmm. Even if they become an architect and a fashion designer, mm-hmm. keep the business, keep, keep the asset in the family, even if it's just a break-even enterprise. This is part of the legacy of the family in the Valley mm-hmm. in a really small town where these kind of things mean a lot. And these kind of things can be very impactful from philanthropic standpoints or you know, just sort of uh, reputation standpoints to help keep a town on the map or, or however you want to phrase it. So what we'll try to impart to those guys is if we get this thing to where we're able to hand it off to you, please, if you can, hold on to it. Like we don't want to see the kids, you know, fall into bankruptcy and, you know, if it, just trying to hold on to a family asset. But even if you don't have interest, hire someone to run it, make it a break-even enterprise, but sort of keep the legacy of the family going. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the prominent growers in the Valley, Andy Bexoffer, 
mixed reputations in some regards. But one of the things I've I've admired in Andy is he's building this legacy for the Bexhoffer family, where the family can certainly revenue from the project going forward, but they can never sell anything. And that's a tempting thing to try to lock up some physical assets and be like, hey, this is our family's property, and we want it to stay in the family for as long as possible. And so we're going to do anything we can to to turn this into legacy and set the kids up mm-hmm. to sort of be the be the second generation for us in the wine business in the valley. Um, Oscar, if I, I this is a just a random guess, if anyone's going to go to college and come right back home and work in the family business, is going to be Oscar. A little bit of path of least resistance, and he's kind of our, our family guy. And then Hazel will venture way out into the world, and and we'll see if she ever comes back. I think we're going to have to go visit her is my impression. Oh, they often come back. We have one here right now. Yeah. So w- when you, you talked about what you like about Calistoga, and, and in any small town, the debate about preserving the character of the small town is an eternal debate. Um, what is it that you think Calistoga should make a special effort to preserve? That's a yeah, it's a good question. Um, I may not get right to the answer, but um, one one of the things I like about the town is it's been a town of five thousand people for fifty years. So I mean, people talk about growth and change and. Um, different demographics coming into town and taking over and changing some things. And um, I just don't quite see that yet. Even, even as someone who's involved in some of these, some of the controversial projects in town, like I'm involved in the Four Seasons project. To me, these are, are sort of revenueing projects and small elements of change in the, in the town that will allow the town to keep its doors open. Um, I don't remember the exact number, but after the sort of crash of 08, the Calistoga General Fund dropped to 50 grand 15 i think 15 grand that's a very scary proposition for a town Mm -hmm. so i think you either change or you die but it doesn't mean change is always bad so i've seen some nicening elements and you know who doesn't like the roads getting repaved occasionally or a new park getting put in or a park being improved or you know all rec services in town are now free, those kind of things. So I think the core of the town won't, won't change. I think partly because people won't let it change. And change comes really slowly to these areas because there's not a financial incentive to make wholesale changes because all these businesses that you would think could rush in if you just la- laxed every rule, they couldn't make it because the town's not big enough to support all of them. So you're seeing change happen very slowly and it's happening mostly from the outside. So it's more about catering to folks who come visit and then leave. That's what this town was built on. I mean, that's mostly what Napa was built on as a valley. Um, but the core will remain the same. I, I do understand there's folks who've been priced out of town in terms of home ownership and that kind of stuff. And even with a recession potentially looming, I don't see that changing. Um, but I still think the core values of the town, the safety of the town, um, we're fortunate the kids roam around town. I'm not too worried, but I am a parent, so I do call them incessantly just to make sure they're fine. I just don't see that changing. Um, and that value of safety, I think, is one of the most important things we have here. Like you, you and I aren't afraid to leave our doors open. We'll leave our keys in our car if we're running into Calmart, you know, whatever. Um, we've had the front door of our house blow open when we're on vacation, and we're right on Cedar where you guys are. 
no one walked in and stole anything. If nothing, I mean, 48 hours in, a neighbor called Genevieve's dad and told him our front door was open. You know, that kind of thing. Those are the kind of core values that I hope never change, and I, I just don't see them changing anytime soon. Um, the neighborly connection's nice. Even in the shutdown, you know, I still see people congregating safely, you know, in, in parts of town and making sure everybody's okay. And people here check in on folks. They send them a uh, text or they call or they knock on the door or they drop them a note. That's the kind of stuff I hope never changes. And, and I just don't see in the near future anything like that will change in Calistoga. That's great. Thomas Brown, thank you very much for your time this afternoon. Um, and I wish you well in this uh, strange period that we're all in. Yeah. No, thanks for having me. And uh, hopefully next time we talk, we'll be in, in better conditions. All right. We'll thank sit closer you. together. Yes. Thanks. <laughs>